0: Good afternoon, my name is Michael. I serve as one of the elders of the church. If you're visiting, it's great to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Lamentations chapter 4. It's in the Old Testament, a little past Psalms and Proverbs, Lamentations chapter 4. If you're visiting a city, I wonder if you ever do the bus tour. My mom is a big proponent of bus tours. You know she says it's the f- best, the most efficient, the fastest way to see a city. Not only do you get to see lots of the city, but you even have a tour guide with you usually, whether that's in person or you know through a little earpiece. And they kind of narrate what's going on. You know what's the history bethi- behind this building? How come that's there? I hate to say it, but in six years of being in Dubai, I've never done the bus tour. But Uh, If I were to do the bus tour, you know, the first stop would probably be at Dubai Mall. And the guide might say a little something like, you know, this mall is as big as 50 football pitches. You know, a little fascinating fact. Uh, Then they might take you to the Burj Khalifa. Of course, the guide would tell you this is one of the world wonders. You know, it's the tallest building in the world. Then you'd probably stop by the Gold and Spice Souks. The guide would remind you that, you know, this shows the tradition of the city even before oil struck. You know, this is what the city was like. You might hit the Mall of the Emirates, the Atlantis, the Burj Al Arab, lots to see in Dubai, right? Uh, But it's one thing to see a city. It's another thing to hear about the story of the city from a guide. So I wonder if you and I went back in time to 587 B.C. to the city of Jerusalem, what would we see? Today, the author of Lamentations acts as our tour guide through the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, if you remember, it was a city like no other. Now, you need to know a little bit of the history of the city before we get into this text. If you remember, all the way back to Genesis 12, God promised Abraham, who was not an Israelite, that he would make him into a people and give him a land. You know, and by the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, the first promise is fulfilled. The people outnumber the stars in the sky. The second problem, the second promise has a little problem because they're stuck in slavery to Egypt. But by the end of the book of Exodus, they're out of Egypt, they've been delivered, and Moses, God's servant, brings them to the border of the promised land. And it's very interesting, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, he splits the people up in half, he says, hey, half of you go stand on this mountain, the other half, you stand on this mountain. And then he has them do an antiphonal reading, like we do in our church. You know, that means that one side of the group, they speak something to the other side. And then they respond back and forth, back and forth. One side, if you were there, you would watch one side speak blessings for obedience. If you obey the covenant, blessings are yours. But the other side, and the side that spoke much longer, almost triple, spoke curses for obedience. That's happening right before they enter the promised land then they get in, as you know, if you know your Old Testament history, they do conquer their enemies through Joshua, the kingdoms established with David, and it's in Jerusalem that David builds a palace, Solomon builds a temple. You think everything's going so well, but then Solomon turns his heart away from the Lord. He pursues the idols of the nation, and king after king follows suit. So the prophets come and they warn the people, but the law has been forgotten and the prophets are ignored over and over and over again. That city, Jerusalem, that once was a city of refuge, becomes a city of injustice where even the most vulnerable are preyed upon by the leaders. Generation after generation, They disobey the Lord's covenant, but finally, the covenant has been broken. So the Lord promises those covenant curses from Deuteronomy 28. They've been promised, and we know God always keeps his word. So Lamentations is a poetic reflection of when God's curse falls upon your city. Listen to the author of Lamentations give us a guided tour of Jerusalem. Lamentations chapter 4. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast; They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up In purple, embrace ash heaps, for the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe nor any of the inhabitants of the world that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away! Unclean! People cried at them. Away! Away! Do not touch! So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens, They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under His shadow, we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also The cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we know that eternal life is knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So help me as I preach to faithfully unfold your word and give light and help us together take joyful delight in your word. Help us understand by the power of the holy spirit in jesus name amen lamentations was written for afflicted saints it was written by a sufferer for sufferers and as you remember the author likely is jeremiah he's reflecting on every deal detail of suffering the five four of the five poems are acrostic poems covering A in the Hebrew alphabet all the way to Z. And we see that grief is a cycle because the poems just repeat the same themes over and over again and over again and over again. Five times. So we're looking at the fourth lament today. And there's three points I want to share with you. Three points. First is this. Reflect on sin's revenge. Reflect on sin's revenge, verses 1 through 11. We all struggle with sin, I'll be the first to admit, and it always looks sweet at first, doesn't it? We all, to some extent, trust in idols, and they always seem, at first, so strong, like they can actually give us what they promise, but you and I both know that while sin first tastes sweet, eventually we find out it's poisonous. And those idols that promise us so much, they fail us without fail. What sins, friends, do you seek? Just just a little taste of, just a little bit. What idols captivate your heart? Think about it for a moment. What are your particular temptations? Perhaps you're sitting here and you're thinking, I can't really think of anything. Let me encourage you, just wait until suffering knocks on your door. God uses suffering in a way to wake us up like an ice cold splash in the face. Suffering is a good time to reflect on sin's revenge. If you look at verses 1 and 2, we see that God's people here, at one point, they hoped in their wealth. They thought it could save them. Look at verses 1 and 2. Notice the repeated word, gold, gold, the pure gold. The sons worth their weight in fine gold. You know, when we moved to Dubai at first, I thought in Dubai Mall that I saw a gold dispenser. You know, like you put in durhams and maybe it gives you a bar of gold or something. I don't know if it really was a gold dispenser, but there's one thing that's certain in this city. There is a lot of gold here, but nothing compared to what Jerusalem would have been like. If you went back to Jerusalem before the siege, gold was everywhere, but especially in the temple. So the Ark of the Covenant, the walls of the sanctuary, the vessels and the utensils, Even the shields were all made of gold. Now, gold rarely tarnishes. That's one of the reasons it's so precious. But if you look at verses 1 and 2, something was happening. The gold lost its luster. Now, you know that pure gold stays that way. It doesn't change. But in Jerusalem, something was happening. The gold stopped glittering. Now, even this temple, if you remember, was burned to the ground. We see here the stones from the temple. They were just scattered throughout the streets. And the sons of Zion, perhaps those noble, the people with a lot of wealth, they were knocked down in status from gold to clay. Friends, money is an important resource, it's a terrible idol. Money is inherently good, but love of money is inherently evil. And all of us in this room, we have money, some of it at least, but how do you know if money has you? How can you tell? I highly doubt that anyone in this room has a shrine at their home with, you know, a hundred Durham bills sitting there that you go home and you worship. If you do, if that's you, let me just warn you, that is idolatry. It's sin. But most of us m- our love for money, it's it's a bit hidden, isn't it? Here's two tests, let me encourage you. Two tests so you can examine your own heart. The first one, show me your bank statement. Let's see the receipts. Now, what I'm not saying here is after the service, when I stand in the back, you come and you pull up your bank statement on your phone and you say, okay, um, do you want to look at this? That's not what I'm saying. You know, it would be wise, I think, if you found a trusted church member, somebody that you know well, and you said, hey, could you look over my budget with me? The reason is because Jesus said, show me your treasure, I'll show you your heart. So how you spend your money actually reveals where you place your trust. It reveals that. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here, you should be able to look over the shoulder of your Christian neighbor and kind of see their bank statement and be shocked. You should be shocked because you should see that they're not storing up treasure on earth. They're storing up treasure in heaven and it shows, so that's the first thing, show me your bank statement, not me but your own. You know, the second thing is how do you respond when your money, your hard earned money is taken away, how do you respond? So the loss of a job, a business failure, a recession, these things all can reveal that our hearts really trusted in paper-thin financial security. So if you lose money, do you lose sleep? Is it all you can think about it, how to get it back? Or friend, if you found out tomorrow morning that you lost your job and your bank account was empty, if that's the news you woke up to tomorrow, could you still sing like we just did moments ago, should my life be torn from me? Every worldly pleasure. When all I possess is grief, God be then my treasure. Could that still be your song? If money's your problem, here's the solution cheerful generosity. Cheerful generosity. Put your treasure in heaven and your heart will follow. If money's your idol, you kill it, not by burning it, although that could be appropriate. You kill it by giving it away. Give it away. Money can't buy that security that you long for. Only God can provide that. So free your affections and remind your soul that because you trust in Jesus Christ, You're secure in God. And money is not your God. Friends, sadly, there's many preachers out there who will tell you that if you're faithful, you'll be financially well off. And if you're faithless, you'll be filled with financial struggles. God never never promises us lots of money. He never promises that. So if you have little money let me encourage you, don't hope in more money, hope in the Lord. And if you have lots of money, let me warn you, don't trust in your money, trust in the Lord. There's wisdom in how we use our money, so you can't, there's not like a, you know, a Christian ideal for a bank statement, and all of them should look the same. But friends, we need one another to help detect if this idol has taken control of our hearts. In lamentations before the siege, they were wealthy. In verse 3, we also see that they lived in comfort. But in verse 3, they had become crueler than animals. Look at verse 3. Even jackals offer of the breasts. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel. A great reversal had struck Jerusalem. Jackals nurse their babies, but look at verse 4. Babies thirst. You know, I love that we have a nursing mother's room at Covenant Hope Church. You know, it's in the back of the room. If you hear noises coming from there, remember, children are a blessing. They are not a burden. They're a blessing. They're not a distraction. But in Jerusalem, either the mothers produce no milk or they refuse to spare it. If you look at verse 4, the children beg in Jerusalem, but either there's no food to spare or they just refuse to share. Now, this was not how Jerusalem once was. Notice in verse 5. There were once feasts, but those who feasted now died in the streets. Even the royal families, the nobility were affected. Famine did not discriminate. They once brunched at the Burj al-Arab. Now they're dining in dumpsters. And remember the city of Sodom. Look at verse 6. That city, that wicked city that was destroyed by fire, the author says that Sodom had it better than Jerusalem. They hoped in wealth. It failed. They were happy in their comfort, but it didn't last long. In verse 7, we find yet another reversal. Look at verse 7. Her princes were whiter than snow. Her princes were purer than snow. Excuse me. Whiter than milk. Verse 8. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. They once looked good. They were in good shape. But judgment came. And it didn't matter if you were a member of the royal family. If you saw them walking in the streets, you wouldn't even recognize who they were. Friends, good health is a great gift. But it's a gift that's promised to none of us. So work out, sure, eat healthy, but do not put your hope in your body. The Bible tells us from dust you came, from dust you shall return. Throughout this chapter, as as I read it, I'm sure you saw, the tour guide shows us the devastating effects of starvation. Starvation in the city, starvation on the body, Verse 9, he even says, happier were those victims of the sword than the victims of hunger. Think about that for a second. How can it be better to die than to live? And in verse 10, the unthinkable happens. It's even hard to read this verse out loud. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Friends, how how can that description of those women go with what they do? He calls them compassionate. Now, if you remember back to Deuteronomy 28, one of the curses that they were warned with was that this exact thing would happen. How can a compassionate woman do that? Well, when you're being starved, day after day after day, when your body has no food to eat, you start to lose your mind. And that's exactly what happened here. So those children who once begged for food become food themselves. Friends, I hope you see it. Jerusalem is being turned upside down. Why did this happen? It happened because of sin. (coughs) Sin is serious. Sin is sickening. It's disgusting. Sin is deadly. I hate sin. Friends, I hate the effects of sin in this world. I hate the sin of this city. I hate the sin of this church. I look in my own heart. I hate my own sin. Christians, do you hate sin? Yet as bad as sin is, sin was not their biggest problem. Look at verse 11. The Lord gave full vent to His wrath. Full vent. He poured out His hot anger. Their biggest problem was not sin. Their biggest problem was God's wrath against sin. They broke the covenant. So God sent the Babylonians to punish them. They were starving because their sin deserved God's wrath. They shriveled up because their sin deserved God's wrath. They died because their sin deserved God's wrath. Friends, we've sinned. And our sin deserves God's wrath. And there's only two options for us, wrath deserving sinners. Two options. One, we can receive it in full. Full vent. Hot anger. Without mercy. Or, Christ can receive wrath in our place. Those are the options. You can't work your way out of God's wrath. You can't pay your way out of God's wrath. The only salvation for sinners is, available is by God's grace through the work of Jesus Christ. Friends, we read that in our statement of faith. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. In His death, He made full atonement for our sins and became our sacrificial substitute, forgiving our sins, absorbing the wrath of God, and adopting us into the family of Christ. God. Friends, you should remember sin's revenge, but you must also remember sin's defeat. Jesus suffered as a substitute. He was slain for sinners. He absorbed the wrath that we deserved. We sang it earlier. He's the lamb who was slain for our pardon. And Jesus rose from the grave. He lives today. Friends, let me exhort you, encourage you, plead with you, trust in Jesus Christ and God's wrath is absorbed for your sins. Turn to Christ. Flee to Christ. And if you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, we read Lamentations 4 in the shadow of the cross. Here's the heart of this sermon. The most important thing. We weep over sin and suffering because God's wrath was satisfied. We weep over sin and suffering because God's wrath was satisfied. Christian, if sin allures you, when Satan tempts you, let me encourage you, learn to weep. Pray for a heart that hates sin. Pray for tears when you sin. But, friend, don't weep as a saint who faces wrath. You face wrath no longer. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins have been forgotten because Jesus satisfied God's wrath for you. So, as suffering comes, for some perhaps it's here today, learn to weep. Pray for a heart that turns to God in suffering. Pray for a heart that praises God in suffering. But don't weep as a saint whose greatest suffering is ahead of you. Your greatest suffering, Christian, will never happen because you'll never face eternal wrath in hell. It will never come. Because Jesus satisfied God's wrath for you. And Christian, let me encourage you, don't weep for sin or for suffering alone. Don't do it alone. Just as Jesus refuses to give up on you, He refuses to give up on you in your sin, so we as the church refuse to throw in the towel on our brothers and sisters when they sin against us. We're not going to give up on you. And just as Jesus continues to carry our burdens for suffering, so we as the church commit to persevere with one another, To bear each other's burdens and sorrows, we weep for sin and suffering together. We're in this together. Friends, I'm so thankful for Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for the church. In point two, let's move to point two verses 12 through 20. Don't always follow the leader. Don't always follow the leader. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. So the fall of Jerusalem was a surprise to the watching world. It was a surprise. Nobody expected it. And we already asked the question, why was the Lord's wrath on the people? And we saw the answer was, it's the people's sin. As a whole, their hearts had turned to idols. Yet here, in verses 12 through 20, we find out that it was, even more specifically, it was the leader's sin. The leaders had led God's people to leave the Lord. Friends, don't always And that's the key word, always follow the leader. In verses 12 through 20, we see just how far leaders can fall. And he begins with the prophets and priests in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. You know, if you know Old Testament history, you might expect the sin mentioned to be that the prophets sinned by prophesying falsely And that did happen. You might think that the priest sinned by serving idols. And that did happen. The prophet's job was to protect the people by speaking God's word to them. The priest's job was to protect the people by sacrificing animals to the Lord for them. But that's not the sin mentioned. Look at verse 13. He says they shed the blood of the righteous. Imagine running into a prophet or priest in Jerusalem before the siege. You would probably look the other way or run away. They were wicked men who shed the blood, not of goats, for the forgiveness of sins. They shed the blood of the godly. Now, if you read Isaiah and Jeremiah, what you're going to see is that God's leaders took advantage of the most vulnerable Israelites, the sojourners, the widows, the orphans, their blood was on their hands. And look at verse 14. The blood blinded them. It blinded them. They were so defiled by blood that they couldn't even see straight. Now, remember in Leviticus, one of the laws that was given was that if you're unclean, you have to shout to people and say, Unclean, I'm unclean, so that people could stay away. But look at verse 15. The people shouted at the priests and the prophets. Now remember, part of the priest's job was to help the people understand what was clean and unclean. And yet in verse 16, and verse 15, the jobs are reversed. Here, the people are telling the priests, you're unclean, you're unclean. And eventually, even the nations say, we don't want to have anything to do with them. Stay away. One of the curses from Deuteronomy 28 also was that no favor would be shown to the elders. Look at verse 16. The curse is fulfilled. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. Friends, don't always follow the leader. People are often our favorite idols. Especially leaders. Leaders. Church, you shouldn't follow me or the other elders of this church blindly. Follow us, yes, please do. Imitate us, obey us even, the New Testament tells us. But only insofar as we teach God's word to you rightly and we live out God's word faithfully. You should examine our teaching. Even as I preach, you should pick up your Bible and check if the words that are flowing out of my mouth are the words from the Bible that flow from God's mouth. You should examine our lives. Do we practice what we preach? Pastors are not models of perfection. But we better be models of repentance. As we sin, and we do, if you didn't know, And we will continue to until Jesus returns. Do you see us asking for forgiveness from turning from sin and turning to Christ? Jesus lives in the light. He cleanses all who walk with Him. So you should see the elders of the church practicing courageous honesty about our sin with the Lord, with one another. This is what you should expect from your leaders. And you can go wrong with this. You know, I had a church member who I didn't know very well ask me one time. He said, hey, tell me your deepest, darkest sin. You know, I was like, (laughs) well, I don't know you very well. You know, maybe a better application would be if you're a church member, pray for your elders. Pray for your elders. Pray for us to love God's word. Pray for us to cherish Christ. Pray for us to hate sin. Pray for us to walk in the light. Pray for our friendships as elders to flourish so that we would help one another fight sin. We're sheep first that need shepherding too. And we're also sheep who shepherd. We need your prayers. Covenant Hope Church, you should choose your leaders carefully. Choose your leaders carefully. Not always, but most often as the leaders go, so goes the church. Lord willing, you know, just in a couple weeks at our next members meeting, we're going to vote on a new elder, Lord willing. Keshav DeWongan. Keshav's right here on the second row if you've you've not seen him. You know, anytime we choose leaders as a church, you should read before we even gather. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And you should examine those texts and know what to look for. You shouldn't choose leaders based on their age, based on their life experience, based on their business success, Read those lists, and what you'll see is you should choose leaders based on their godliness. Choose character. Choose wisely. And friends, if you ever have any questions, if you're a member of the church, let me encourage you, please do talk to one of the elders. It's literally our job, and it's our joy, to teach you God's Word. So ask us. Ask us. Talk to us. We want to be faithful to teach you God's Word clearly. In verse 17, the problem actually goes beyond the prophets and priests. And the author turns to the failures of the kings. Look at verse 17. Our eyes failed ever watching vainly for help. In our watching we watch for a nation which could not save. So Babylon, first when they attacked the city, they set up siege towers. Then, Jerusalem, it seems, whether it's metaphorically or not, it looks like they set up lookout towers. They were hoping for the cavalry to one day storm in and save them. And the king, he even sought political solutions to the problem, thinking that maybe Egypt could form an alliance with them and Egypt could come to their rescue. Right before the city was breached, It seems that the people found out that trusting in another nation, even trusting in their own king, would prove fatal. Look at verse 18. It seems they chanted this in the streets. They said, Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Then the author jumps after the city fell in verse 19. King Zedekiah fled the city And Judah was his land. He knew it like the back of his hand. Maybe, perhaps, he could escape his captors. But the Babylonians, in verse 20, were faster than eagles. And even the Lord's anointed, the king, was captured. The king was the last hope. He was the one of whom they said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations. And King Zedekiah was of particular interest to the Babylonians because it was King Zedekiah that was the one that rebelled against the king of Babylon. The people thought that the Lord's anointed would bring the Lord's protection. But they forgot there was one little condition of the covenant. It was one little word, just two letters in English. If, if your sons keep my covenant. That's when the Lord would provide protection. But we've seen in the Old Testament, king after king, son after son, betrayed God. They broke God's covenant. And Judah followed their leaders. They followed their leaders away from the Lord and all the way into exile. Friends, leaders will fail you. Don't follow them in their failures. If you've been a Christian a while, you probably know some leaders by name, perhaps friends, perhaps pastors from the past who have fallen into sin or even fallen away from the faith. Godly leaders do deserve our trust. Authority is a good gift from God. So don't follow the cultural moment right now that says all authority is inherently bad. That's a lie from Satan. But some leaders fail. And when they fail, make sure that your trust, your faith, is not firmly found in them, but it's found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Think about Jesus for a second. He he never shed the blood of the righteous. Jesus had his own blood shed, his righteous blood for the unrighteous. Jesus followed and obeyed God's word perfectly. He was the word of God. And now he sits enthroned in heaven, seated at the Father's right hand. And what's he doing right now? He's interceding for the church. Jesus will never fail you. He'll never fail you. Friends, I realize this is a heavy sermon. And I've tried to be faithful to the tone and the content of this chapter. But while it's a heavy lament, it's not a hopeless one. It's not a hopeless one. The third and final point is always look to the end. Always look to the end. Verses 21 and 22. Look at verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass, you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. There's only one command in this lament. One single command. Rejoice and be glad. But notice, it's not to the daughter of Jerusalem, It's not to the daughter of Zion, it's to the daughter of Edom. God's judgment is coming for God's enemies. Now, if you remember, it's Babylon that's, you know, holding them captive. It's Babylon that sends them into exile. So why does he mention Edom here? Edom, though they didn't destroy Israel, they rejoiced in the destruction. And they even occupied some of Judah's land while they're in exile. The end of the Edomites is coming. They will drink God's judgment and live in shame without salvation. The end of God's enemies is coming. Friend, if you're not a, if you're not a Christian, you need to think about the end. You need to think past this week. You need to think past that long weekend at National Day or even past your plans of where you're gonna live after you live in Dubai. You need to think about the end. What will you be doing, not a decade from now, but a thousand years from now? Because one day soon, friend, the cup of God's wrath is gonna be handed to you. You feel just a little bit of sin's revenge on this earth But on that day, friend, you'll feel it fully and you may watch in vain for somebody to come rescue you, but no one will come. But friend, your ending does not have to be that way. Your ending could be different. If you trust in Jesus Christ, if you weep over your sin and you repent of it, that does not have to be your end. The end of enemies is coming in verse 22, the last verse. And the only verse of hope in the whole chapter, verse 22, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Friends, the consequences of sin are horrible, but look there at verse 22, the punishment It was accomplished. Their punishment was limited to the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. God's wrath towards them was not unending. Exile would end. There would be an end date on it. And the end of exile, it came in two stages. So first, there was the physical release from Babylon. That would happen after 70 years. And then, after that, years later with the coming of Jesus Christ, there would be a release, freedom from spiritual exile, freedom from sin. If you think about exile in the Bible, God's people had actually been living in exile for a lot longer than Lamentations. God's people had been in exile since they were exiled from Eden in Genesis 3. And freedom from exile would finally come 2,000 years ago with the coming of Jesus Christ. So the question we have as Christians is, is exile over? Is exile over? And the answer is yes. And the answer is no. Yes, it's over. In that sin has been defeated, but we're on the way home. Christians, we're on the way out of this world onto our heavenly home. That's where we're headed. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, always look to the end. Keep your head up. Look to the return of King Jesus. As you face sin and suffering, remember that Jesus Christ will return to take his longing exiles home. Any suffering that you face in this life will pale in comparison to the glory that's coming your way. Exile will end. Sin will end. Sorrow will cease. Friend, look to the end. But friend, don't look to the end alone. One reason that God saved you is so that you can actually help other Christians make it home to heaven. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Who doesn't need encouragement when they're in exile? Everybody. When we sin and suffer, our temptation is to isolate ourselves. But as you probably know, lonely Christians are an easy target for Satan. He convinces us two things. One, that We shouldn't burden others with our sorrows or our sins. Or even worse, he convinces us that nobody is suffering or sinning quite as bad as us. So we shouldn't share it. How do you fight these temptations? One thing is what you guys all did today. Show up at church. Gather with the saints. That's what the author of Hebrews says. Gather with the saints. Share your suffering and your sin with other Christians and help one another look to the end. Friends, let me encourage you, if you're a member of Covenant Hope Church especially, that's one reason to show up to the service 15 minutes early and to stay after late. Show up early because there may be Christians here that need your encouragements while they're in exile. Friends, the end of our exile is coming. We don't know when, but we know it's ending soon. We hopped on the tour bus. We saw the suffering city of Jerusalem. More than simply seeing their suffering, the tour guide told us why they suffered. They suffered God's wrath because of their sin. They suffered God's wrath because of their leaders. But their suffering, their enemies, and their sin is coming to an end with the suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we live in the shadow of the cross, we too are learning how to weep for our sin and our suffering. But not as those whose God's wrath remains, but as those whose God's wrath has been satisfied. Let's pray. Lord, we know that sin is horrible. And we would be shocked if we even knew the depths of our own sin. Yet you chose to save us. You saved us from our sin through the Savior, Jesus Christ. We praise your name. And we ask for strength, Lord. Give us strength to weep over our sin and suffering. Give us wisdom to follow leaders wisely. Give us courage to always look to the end. To that day when we will be in exile no longer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.